we engage with such amazing content every day on platforms like TikTok and YouTube and Instagram that brands really have to up their game of make content that people are going to want to engage with regardless and get the questions answered in a more natural, conversational way as part of that. Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. Joining me today is Tom Coburn, co-founder and CEO of Jebit, the world's first declared data platform enabling marketing and sales teams to create beautiful mobile experiences aimed at capturing the most important consumer data that an enterprise needs. Instead of relying on third-party data, which is often highly inaccurate and incomplete, enterprise brands use Jebit to capture consumer intentions, motivations, and, pre- and preferences. Jebit was founded in January 2011 when Tom and his co-founder, Michael Marcus, were at Boston College together. It was named one of the top 25 most promising companies in the world by CNBC, the best tech culture in Boston in 2016, and you and Michael uh, are both Forbes 30 under 30 honorees. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you. So tell me, what's the biggest problem that Jebit solves for its clients? I mean, we talk, I said a little bit about it, but yeah. I'd like to hear it from you. Uh, it's really twofold. The first is more of a creative problem, and the second is a data problem. So on the creative mm-hmm. front, let's say you're an e-commerce brand. Many brands today want to have a quiz on their website. You've probably seen hundreds of them just being a consumer where you go to a site and it's, hey, answer five questions and we'll help you find the right product for you yep. rather than you need to search for yourself. So if I'm a marketer and I want to have that built out by you know my own engineering team or my agency, it's going to cost me a lot of money and take a long time. And with Jebit, I can literally do that in 30 minutes. I can grab a template. I don't need to know any coding and I can get in there and design it, write all my questions, set up all the logic, all of that, and get it published and ready for my website. Um, so that's the creative problem. The second problem we're helping them solve is the one you were talking about with first-party data, or there's a new term growing called zero-party data, which basically just means first-party data that a consumer actually tells you with consent, aka they answer questions about themselves or they fill out a form. And so we help brands capture that at scale through these quizzes and these interactive experiences. So the quiz provides a better shopping experience in the moment, but you also learn five things about every customer that does it. And that's really valuable data, five things if there's five questions. And that's really valuable data you can use in the future for better personalization. It helps the company, the, the customer um, of yours, market better to their to their customers. Is that it? Yeah, market better in the moment and then use the data to market better in the future. Got it. Interesting. So as I said, you and Michael founded this when you were still in school at Boston College. How did you come up with this idea? Yeah, there was a big group of us, uh, Michael, Matt, Jonathan, Duncan, a bunch of others, uh, Jeb, who was my roommate, who the company is named after. Um, Got it. And, uh, you know, we were not, uh, first and foremost, I would say I did not go to college thinking I was going to start a company. I thought I was going to go be a doctor like my grandpa. I was a biology major. 
And uh, all my roommates and friends, you know, Michael included, were in the business school. And our school has a business plan competition, like many others have. You can pitch an idea and win $10,000. And I just thought it would be fun to do this with my friends and try to win the money. We weren't actually thinking of starting the company. We were just going to take the money and keep it. And um, first year, we tried to start a medical device company to combine my science interests with theirs. And second mm-hmm. year, we, we started Jebit. Where'd the idea come from? I was watching a TV show online. I was on Hulu. I had a 30-second video ad before the show. And right. my just natural reaction as a college kid was I ignored the ad and I went to Facebook while the ad played. And when it came back, it just dawned on me, the brand is wasting their money. They may as well have thrown that money out the window because I was on mute on a different tab. And so our very first product of Jebit was different than what we do today. We, we pivoted multiple times over the years, but the original idea was, could we attach questions to video ads and pay people to answer the questions? And then we would only charge the brand if you answered the question correctly. So the brand would know you watched their ad and know they weren't wasting money. Um, so it actually was less of questions to learn about the consumer. And it was more of a question of like, how many miles per gallon were in that car? And you'd have to type it in and prove you paid attention to the ad. Right. Well, and using Hulu as an example, as a customer there of theirs myself, um, you know, I, I, I do the same thing. You know, when there's an ad, I walk away and do something different, right? But I've noticed if I happen to be watching something on my laptop, you know, maybe while I'm, you know, cooking dinner in the kitchen or something, they'll give you an option of the regular break or an interactive ad. Is that you on the back end there? No. So that I would mean, have been something us. Like you do? Yeah. Had, yeah. had we stayed down that path, we might've ended up doing things like that. But mm. in 2013, we pivoted the company in a totally different direction and we got out of the advertising world. Um, this might be a little bit of a nuance for people not in this space, but we got out of the advertising world and we got into the marketing technology world where we don't have anything to do with ads. We help you build content for your website and your emails and things like that. Um, so we, uh, that was just a, one of the pivot, one of the multiple pivots we made. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you say you, you help companies build content for their website. You mean actual website content or could it be blog content, you know, other types of content? So we can power all different types of interactive experiences. So let's say you're a brand and, and let's say I sell mountain bikes. I'm a big mountain biker, right? So you could go right on the page and the page that has all the products, it could be a quiz that matches you the right bike for you when you answer six questions, let's say. Or they could go to their blog and they have all these blogs of top 10 places to mountain bike in California. They could make that an interactive article and they could make it a fun piece of content where you can answer some questions about yourself. And we have, there's many other, we call them experience types that can be embedded on your website. One way or another, it's a fun piece of content for the consumer that helps the brand ask some questions to the consumer about themselves in a more natural way than a survey. I think we all know as consumers, we don't like taking surveys. So I'm way more likely to answer three questions about my mountain bike habits as part of a quiz or an interactive article than I am as part of a survey. Yeah, that's really interesting. Uh, Do your clients focus on any particular age or gender of person? No, we have. Does this work better with any, you know, with any demographic? Is like really there are certain types of specific experiences that will work better. For example, when the NBA does a quiz of what NBA player is most like you, 
I'd say that generally skews more to a younger demographic where you've got teenagers that want to be NBA players someday. Um, but no, the, the platform itself and is, is just a platform to create the content. So you can create content for any gender, any demographic. Um, that's really up to the creativity the marketer brings to the platform. So you've taken uh, $92 million over six rounds. Mm-hmm. You took your seed round in February 2013. So, you know, $92 million in nine years, that's fairly impressive. What has uh, your investors excited about what you do? There's, you know, there's a lot of people doing things that might be somewhat similar or adjacent to what you do. What is it about Jebit? Yeah. Kind of- your investors excited? Well, it would depend on which group of investors you asked, because in the early days, we had no idea what we were doing and we were trying to figure it out. So I think if you ask the investors who invested in 2013 or 2015, they would probably tell Mm -hmm. you, hey, we weren't sure where the product was going to go, but we believed in the team and we thought they were going to figure it out. And, you know, we believed in the market. I'm sure they would tell you that. Um, If you talk to Vista, our most recent investors, um, you know, they would probably talk to you about the market trends that they're seeing, uh, you know, with all the privacy legislation that's going out with the changes that Apple has made that you see significantly impacting Facebook and other platforms for advertising. Google has announced they're going to get rid of third party cookies. Um, whether you're in the weeds or not on these like, changes kind of behind the scenes, the main takeaway is that brands are being forced to get data directly from their customers and get it with right. consent from their customers. Gone are the yeah, days of we just amen to that. Exactly. <laughs> gone, gone are the days of we just track you around the web and we sell your data to a hundred parties and things like that. And so that's exactly what we enable brands to do. As our CMO always says internally, you know, we're on the right side of history with where the world is going and the way we're trying to help right. brands engage their customers directly and get data with consent from their customers. And so I think those are probably some of the trends, you know obviously coupled with our growth rates as a company and how strong the platform is and all the big brands that are working with us and, you know, talking publicly about their work with us. I, I think those would probably be the main things that, that you'd hear from Vista. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so let's talk a little bit about your customers. Um, what's your ideal customer look like? We have a wide range of customers. We do a lot of work in the CPG world and the e-commerce world. So, right. you know, Procter & Gamble is a big one and L'Oreal and all different types of e-commerce brands, Asics and eBay, et cetera. Um, we started the company very enterprise focused. So if you talk to me, you know, two, three years ago, almost all of our customers were large enterprise brands. And then about a year and a half ago, we launched a free version through Shopify. We launched a Shopify app. And so now we have tens Very of smart. thousands of smaller companies on the platform as well, right? Now you can be a you know, two-person company in a garage you know, selling granola bars or whatever you know, product you're creating, and you can still build a quiz and get value out of Jebit. And that was a really big moment for us to launch that because you know, we always felt like the mission wasn't exclusive to enterprise brands, right? We had just built a product in a pricing and a sales model and all of that that only made it available for enterprise brands. So, you know, of course that Shopify app is a much more limited version of Jebit. It's way less powerful than the enterprise version, but it at mm-hmm. least helps small companies get in the game of building quizzes, building interactive content, getting this first party declared data or zero party data as, as Forrester is now calling it. Um, so yeah, we, we work with kind of all size companies now. Right. So, so a smaller company can actually afford what you're selling because I'm sure, you know, enterprises are paying considerably more. Yep. Yep. Okay. Fantastic. 
Um, so as I mentioned, uh, you and you and uh, Michael and you know, who's your current co-founder and, and your other, you were all in school together at BC. Um, tell me a little bit about your journey. I mean, this is really your first job out of college. It is. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to hear about your journey and, you know, what kind of challenges you personally have experienced as somebody with, you know, no experience as, as a CEO. Yeah. It's been all smooth sailing. You've made mistakes. Yeah. What you've had a you know change. Those yeah, types no, there's of been no challenges. We've made no mistakes. Um, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. <laughs> I think you better write a yeah. book on that form with that formula um, attached. Look, we've we've been through kind of all the the cliche startup things. You know, we've done the big rounds of funding. We've had to go through layoffs. We obviously had to lead through a pandemic, as every management team has had to do in the last two years. Sure. You know, that part's not unique to us. Um, you know, we pivoted the product in the company, you know, three or four times. So uh, I lost co-founders along the way. Uh, you know, there was a whole group of us that started this. And um, it's just myself, Michael and Matt are the three left. Matt's our CTO um, from the original founding team. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's been a lot. I mean, I'm happy to dive into any one of those uh, more in depth that you're interested in. But um, yeah, uh, it's been a you know, 10, 10 year, I guess, overnight success with a bunch of, bunch of ups. And yeah. Well, right. And, 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 and yeah, and I do want to dive into that because this is, you know, these are the things that budding entrepreneurs need to hear about, mm-hmm. right? The mistakes. And, and so often it's the same kind of things, you know, we took a lot of funding, we hired, you know, and then we had to have layoffs. Mm-hmm. So let's start there. Did you over hire for your needs initially, or did you just end up hiring, you know, quote the wrong people for you? It was not about the wrong people. It was actually the wrong go-to-market strategy that myself and my Mm -hmm. co-founders implemented. Um, Got it. We raised a large Series B. We had just gotten our first two, uh, like million-dollar customers, big enterprise deals. You know, a lot of our customers are, you know, hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars a year. But you know, we started breaking out and. Um, we got those by my co-founders getting in with the CMOs and really being able to tell a bigger story and get the CMO to license a bigger contract. Um, and so we hired all these reps and we basically told them to go do the same thing. And I think we underestimated how hard it is to go close multi-million dollar deals on a brand new product you're learning and you're not the founder of it. And, um, so yeah, I really blame ourselves for it. You know, it was like we hired all these people, right. we gave them a playbook, and then unfortunately, it just didn't work. We weren't booking those deals, and we were putting such a huge price tag on it that most of the deals just weren't closing. And so um, mm-hmm. we then, you know, did layoffs. We had to lay off twelve people, which at the time I think we were maybe forty-five people, something like that. You know, it was a significant amount of people. It was something like twenty-five percent of the staff. And, um, you know, I sat the team down, we did the layoffs. I told everyone to go home that day. This is when we backed, well, this is when we used to all be in an office. And then, uh, I told everyone to come back the next morning and we just explained to them why we had made those decisions, what, what we had learned from it and why it was a mistake. And then more importantly, what we were going to do different moving forward. Um, and that was basically a bottoms up approach where we wouldn't try to book these massive deals. We would update the pricing. So you get started small and just build one quiz for your website and grow from there. And we don't, you don't have to pitch a CMO. You can pitch a social media marketer, an email marketer, the website conversion manager, whoever it might be. And that model, this was about three years ago. 
And that model has really started to work. And we've, you know, doubled the business every year since then, more than doubled the business some of those years, and it just started to see a lot of success. And I think the best part of it is nobody left. You know, I was I was just really nervous and scared after we did it that we were gonna lose a bunch of people. You know, you hear the horror stories of once you do a layoff, you mm-hmm. totally lose the culture and all of that. And it's the thing I'm most grateful for is that every person in that room stayed and now they're all here and they're all hiring a lot of people and running bigger teams and all of those things. And, and obviously, you know, the company's in a totally different position now. So uh, two things, one regarding the new, the, the pricing model, right? You know, not going after the whales, for example, is that more of a land and expand approach? Exactly. Actually, because one quick thing I would say, it wasn't about not going after the whales anymore. We still targeted the biggest brands in the world. We just stopped targeting the CMO for a million dollar deal. And we targeted right. lower level people in the org for smaller deals where they could prove the value. And then to your point, right. land and well, expand from there. Hence, hence, right. Yeah. Hence land and expand. So, so when you were going after the big, the big, you know, initially the big million dollar deals, um, who, who were those salespeople? Were they 20 something or, or were they professional experienced salespeople who were used to closing enterprise deals? A combo and it didn't work for both. <laughs> so, so that didn't end up being the difference, at least with the small amount of data I have, you know, I think mm-hmm. we had like maybe four or five reps that were in their mid twenties and then three reps that were, you know, 20, 25 years experience selling enterprise software. Right. Yep. And they were still having challenges. Yep. Interesting. Okay. Um, so what other, so you said you lost some co-founders along the way. What happened? All different times at different stages. And look, a lot of them were my, are, are still my friends, but were some of my best friends in college. And I get asked that question all the time. If I'll go talk to you know yes. college entrepreneurs, of would you start a company with friends? And I still adamantly believe yes. I believe you're going to mm-hmm. be spending a hundred hours a week on this thing for years, maybe decade plus. Why wouldn't you want to be doing it with people that are some of your best friends, right? Like I was, right. I was the best man in Michael's wedding, who you you know brought up earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to me, that's absolutely who I want to be building it with. But I think what I've tried to maintain the mindset of is. Of course, the friendship needs to come first, but more importantly than that, like we have to be able to just have the open, honest conversation. So, you know, Chase, our CTO who left in 2013, um, you know, I could just kind of tell we were, or maybe it was 2014, we were like a year out of college. We were working these crazy hours trying to get it going. And you could just kind of tell he didn't want to work late into the night. He didn't want to put the weekend Mm -hmm. hours in. And so... I just brought him to lunch one day and I just put it on the table. Hey, you don't seem to be as into it as everyone else. And to give him credit, he thanked me for calling him out on it. And he said, you're right. Like, I'm just really questioning, do I want to spend my early Mm twenties pouring all this time in? I've got friends traveling the world and other friends doing this. And Mm -hmm. so the thing I've always tried to do is not make someone feel trapped. Right. So I said, okay, thanks for sharing. Why don't we have some more combos? Why don't you think about this? Like you don't need to make an immediate decision. And we probably had two dinners over the next month. And the second one ended with him being like, I've thought about it and I really don't think I'm going to give you what you need and I'm going to walk away, you know? Um, And there's many other stories like that, but it's often Mm -hmm. for one reason or another, the person is no longer all in. Right. And of course there's been times I realized someone was in the wrong role and we just moved them into a different role and then they got all in. But, um, you know, for Chase, it wasn't about the role. It was just about the lifestyle at that stage of his life and what he wanted. 
And did he think initially that he did have the the wherewithal and the desire to work 100 hours a week? And then once he got into it, he thought, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. Probably, yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, he joined us um, and I remember he canceled his whole spring break trip junior year of college and rebuilt our whole platform. We had lost our prior developer and he did in it. He did what the other developer did in a year over his spring break, like canceled his trip to Punta Cana or wherever he was going. So yes, I think he, I think he had that work ethic and that sacrifice. I think it was a conscious decision of, to your point, now that I'm into it, now that we're full time and this is our job and we've raised a couple million in funding, I think it was just like, I don't want to go through this grind. And my mindset has always been like, your personal happiness comes first. So like everyone's going to want something different. And so I've always said, as long as I'm still enjoying it and I'm still learning, I'm going to keep doing it. And here I am, you're talking to me a decade into this and I'm still learning a ton every day and enjoying the work. So, um, you know, who knows? Chase has actually started his own company since then. Um, I think he started it maybe three or four years ago, you know, so he's off, Mm -hmm. you know, being an entrepreneur again, but you know, for a while he worked as a software developer at a larger tech company in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. but he had a more balanced life during those years. Sure. Yeah. That's interesting. What's the competitive nature of your business, Tom? You just mean like, who's the scope of competitors? Yeah. I mean, who are you competing against? What does that look like? Where do you, you know, where do you fit into that? Yeah. So we have a handful of enterprise competitors kind of all around the world, but most of our competitors are in the SMB space. There's a lot more, you know, if you just Google like free quiz builder, there's a lot of cheap or free quiz builders out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, you know, a lot of people think on surface value when they hear, when they hear what we do and they hear me talk about like, we can get questions answered without it feeling like a survey. A lot of people think, oh, then you must compete with like a survey monkey or a Qualtrics or a Medallia or things like that. Right. You know, that's not how I view it as much. Qualtrics is an actual partner of ours. You know, we launched our Qualtrics partnership uh, last year. But, you know, it's, hey, use Jebit to build this really engaging quiz and then all the data can flow into Qualtrics and it can be in there just like any of your other, you know, data. And we have this great, you know, partnership we've rolled out and a lot of mutual customers. Um, so I think we're solving different problems than a big legacy, you know, market research or CX player like that because we're so focused on making this amazing consumer experience. And so I think most of our competitors are either the other quiz platforms out there um, or honestly, just a brand trying to do this on their own in-house. We'll meet brands all the time that say, I am going to build interactive content, but I'm going to have my own engineering team do it. Um, and most often, those are the ones that then call us back six months later and say, this actually right. takes a long time, and my engineering team has That's a lot right. of other priorities than maintaining my quiz for me and setting up mm-hmm. AB tests on my quiz for me. So I'm ready to Yeah, I'd love that. to hear that because I think that's that's so often – um, when I, you know, when I interview people or when I've talked to former clients and ask them, they're like, well, our biggest competitors, people who want to do it in house. Yep. <laughs> and then they realize the time and expense and they're like, you know, no, we can't do this. Absolutely. We've got to go have it done for us. Yeah. But that's the best part about where the software world is now is like, there are vendors out there for every element of what you'd want to do, right? If you are that example we used earlier of the 
two people trying to start a granola bar company or whatever it is. It's like, you don't have to do a lot in house anymore. There's so many, you know, set up your Shopify website, set up Klaviyo to do your emails, you know, put a Jebit quiz on there, like just string all of these different platforms together and you'll have a whole business up and running and just focus on obviously making a great product and marketing it. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned earlier that, you know, you have a lot of focus on CPG and e-commerce is, you know, would you say that your, your platform is really being bought by B2C companies? It's his own for the consumers, you know, because yeah. it's inexperiential. Or is there anybody in businesses who, you know, would, would a business sell to another business this way? No, we have a bunch of B2B. I mean, we use it ourselves. We have a quiz on our own website that we built using Jebit to match you to the right Jebit solution for you of how you should get started with Jebit. Um, Love that. Yeah, so we work mm-hmm. in B2B. We work across every vertical. Uh, most of, you know, we have companies in auto and pharma and finance and B2B software and things like that. Um my learning though, you asked about the mistakes I made earlier. You know, one of the big mistakes I made in like 2015, 2016 was saying we're going to be everything to all verticals and have our sales team give. I thought it was good to give our sales team the open freedom of go sell any vertical you want. And then I mm-hmm. realized, nope, mm-hmm. to your question, if you've got mm-hmm. a, you know, mid 20 year old learning how to sell, they have enough to on their plate to learn how to sell keep them focused, just have them sell beauty right. brands all day, just have them sell, mm-hmm. you know, small e-commerce brands or big CPG brands. So they learn that space. And so as a company, we just got really focused in recent years with our proactive efforts on CPG and e-commerce, which is why those are our two biggest verticals. But if you look at like who comes inbound, or if we just like go to an event and meet anyone at the event, you know, that's how we end up getting pharma customers and auto customers and customers in all different verticals. Yeah, that's it's it's real smart that you realize that it's you know sort of land and expand for your you know your employees absolutely <laughs> right yeah you know and that's great. What would you say are the biggest challenges facing your industry today? Well, for the industry as a whole, it's definitely all the privacy legislation, third party cookies going away, all of that. I mean, yep. it's just. drastically changing the way the advertising world has been built to work for the last 25 years or whatever it is. Uh, So without a doubt, that's the biggest one. Yeah. Got it. So you currently have what, about a hundred employees, correct? Yep. Correct. Tell me a little bit about your, you know, you've talked a little bit about, you know, mistake you made, you, you know, had a, you had a layoff, you know, a little bit more than 25% of your, your, about 25% of your people at one point. Um, but aside from that, tell me a little bit about your talent strategy, what's worked for you, what hasn't worked for you and, and what you've had to change. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think a lot of it goes back from it, like for many entrepreneurs, what are your roots of where you got started? So you have to take into account. I was a sophomore in college who was a biology major who decided he was going to start a marketing tech company and I didn't know how to code and I'd never taken a business class didn't know accounting, finance, any of those things. And so I can remember being there the summer after my sophomore year when we decided we were going to work on the business all summer. And I remember thinking, okay, what should I do? Should I go learn to code? Should I go learn finance? Should I go learn, you know, any of these things? And I just decided I thought my superpower could be recruiting the team and building the culture, right? And part of that was the logical point of, okay, if I learn to code, I only know half of it. What about the whole other business half of it? Or vice versa, if I go learn the business half of it, I don't know how to code, et cetera. 
And I had an amazing uh, eighth grade science teacher who totally changed my life. I actually still run a nonprofit with him today. We do leadership education for high school students. So we run a week-long leadership academy in the summer. And he really gave me both the confidence and I think really like the tool set, the skill set to feel like I could be a really positive leader. And so that was the decision I made. I decided I'm going to go recruit everyone. And if I just create an amazing culture, the rest will figure itself out. I would say that was like 90% true because you still need, I learned over time, like you do still need a good go-to-market strategy and a good product and good, you know, other tactical things. But so I have been really focused on just how do I create the most amazing culture since day one. And a couple of the principles for that, for me, I remember our very first meeting I wrote on the board, uh, what you put in is what you get out, which is one of the sayings my eighth grade teacher would always use that, you know, to me applies to anything you do in life, but definitely what you want to do in business. Mm -hmm. To me, it was basically, I want to structure everyone's role at Jebit where they feel like if they give this everything they have, they're going to get a lot out of it right? I didn't want them to come in and feel like, okay, you do these 10 things every day and then you're done and you can go home. I wanted it to be, we're going to go build this game changing company. And if you give it your all and put all it in someone like Michael, you're going to be leading departments someday and you're going to get a ton out of this, both obviously financially, but also just growth, personal growth, career growth, all of that. So that's always been a big thing for me. And then I think the qualities I've always looked for have been initiative and attitude. Like, looking for someone who's going to take initiative and just find problems on their own and solve them. Cause I didn't know what all the problems were, right? We were all diving right. into this head first. And I think I've, I've always just had a short leash for someone with a negative or pessimistic attitude. Like I knew from day one, it was going to be hard and things were going to go wrong for sure. I didn't necessarily think it was going to take as long as it did, or we were going to have to go through layoffs or all of those things. I don't think any entrepreneur really thinks those things are going to happen. Right. But um, I knew it was going to be hard and I knew we were going to need people that were grateful and optimistic and appreciated the opportunity. And when something went wrong, weren't going to get in a room and point fingers at each other, but we're going to get in a room and just say, okay, that thing happened. That that bug was delivered. We lost that customer or whatever. How do we figure mm-hmm. it out? And so I think I That's built right. this really core team of maybe a dozen or so people that had very high initiative and very positive attitudes were very resilient. Um and I think that created the core of what has led to today. Um, if there was one quick thing I had, sorry, I know this is a long answer. The last thing I've tried to always do is be really transparent and be really approachable to anyone on the team. Mm-hmm. So to the point where in the early days, it would not be uncommon for someone to ask me on a random Tuesday, can I talk to you? And we'd go have a three-hour dinner. And that could be about that could be about issues they saw of sales isn't communicating with marketing well, our product is butting heads with engineering or this or that, or that could be more themselves. I'm not sure what I want. I'm not sure if Jebit is right for me. I'm not sure if I want to be in software. I want to kind of like the chase conversation, you know? And I realized around maybe 20, 25 people that was breaking down with the new people. Um, I wasn't able to spend enough time with them for them to trust me. Right. For them to feel yeah. I was approachable. And to, to the early people, I was just Tom. I was just, it was just like, go ask Tom for dinner. Mm-hmm. Go ask Tom for mm-hmm. coffee. For the newer people at that point, it was like, Tom's the CEO. I can't ask him. He's so busy. I can't ask him for two hours of his day or a half hour of his day, even whatever it is. And so I went and hired a woman named Meredith, who I've known my whole life. She's actually part of the nonprofit with me. We, we shared the same mm-hmm. teacher. And I trust her every like with everything on a 
like culture, like human team level. And so she's been with us since we were 25 people and she now runs our whole people team, recruiting process, onboarding, all of that. And she's really become a second me in terms of a, a second executive at the company that you can go to with any problem. You know, you want to ask your boss for a raise and you don't know how to do it. Go call Meredith or, you know, whatever the issue is you're having, you're having a personal issue and you think you need to take a couple weeks off. Like a lot of people have just learned she's a trusted person you can go to. So anyway, sorry. I threw a lot of different things. No, no, don't apologize. That's fantastic. Um, It sounds like, and that's, and that is not an uncommon problem, right? Where the, where the founder and CEO has an open door policy. And then you get to the point and you're like, well, it's not that I don't want to talk to people. I do, but it's just harder. We have more people. I have more things going on. So how do I solve that problem? Yeah. Right. And it sounds to me like you had, and then still do have what I refer to as a culture of feedback, mm-hmm. right? Where, you know, anybody can go to any superior and say, okay, I've got an issue with you or someone else. Can we talk about it? Mm-hmm. Yes. I would way rather, I've always been wired this way, but I would way rather be super approachable and know every problem. And then it's my job to obviously say, realistically, we can't solve 90% of these problems right now. So these are the 10% we're going to solve. Everything else, I want you to know I'm aware of it, but it's just not a top priority right now. Um, I'd way rather have it be that way than the other way around where, you know, management doesn't actually know what the problems are and people are afraid to go tell management the problems. Or yep. Well, like and that. you know, if, fill in the blank with any, any large company and that's probably what's going on. <laughs> well, it gets, I've already learned even going from 20 people to hundred, it just, right. it's just human nature. It just gets, you bigger. have to continue yes. to work on it proactively. Yep. It's really, really important because otherwise you'll end up, you know, being, you know, being something like IBM where, you know, the people at the top don't have any idea what's going on down below. Yep. None. Yeah. So, you know, and this, like I said, fill in the blank with any giant company. Yeah. Um, is there any, uh, what you would say, outdated advice in your industry that's being disseminated? I think the first thing that comes to mind for me is this idea of like big data and you need to get as much data as possible. Um, I think from our learnings and what we've seen customers do in this case studies we've run, like more data doesn't mean it's better, Um, especially if you don't have a plan of what to do with it. And asking more questions doesn't mean it's better. Um, I I remember meeting one company that I will not name for obvious reasons, and they told me uh, it was a razor company, men's razor company, and they told me, we just figured out, we hired this third party agency and we just figured out the 138 things we should know about every man to know how to sell him razors better. And I was like, 138. I was like, okay, where's this going? And then they said, but yeah. we know that obviously no guy is going to sit down and do 138 question survey. So we've mm-hmm. broken it up into three 40 question surveys that we're going to distribute right. over time. And they were, yeah. they were proud of themselves for this work they were putting in and things like that. And what we're yeah. seeing time and time again, it's like two, three, maybe five data points that will control right. 90% of the personalization you're going to do to someone, mm-hmm. right? If you know, and every yeah. industry is different, but if you know X, Y, Z about your customer, you can send them personalized emails, personalized ads. Mm-hmm. And the other 100 data points beyond that, sure, they might give you a little bit more incremental lift, but it's not worth it. It's not worth the time and right. energy. It's not worth pissing the customer off 
trying to get data points 57 through 94 or whatever. And so I think this concept of thinking about smaller data, but being really thoughtful about the data points you collect, I think is, uh, I guess, big data is the outdated piece is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, and, you know, as a consumer myself, just like, you know, as you're a consumer yourself, I certainly know when, when companies send me, companies I'm doing business with maybe, send me a, send me a survey and say, you know, can you fill out our survey? And I'll be like, okay, I'll do this. And then if I get into it and I've answered, you know, a few questions and I'm like 10% of the way through, I just close it. Exactly. I'm done. I don't have time for this. You know, I will, if it's somebody I'm doing business with, I will answer, you know, I may answer up to 10 questions. So, right, because I'm already a customer of theirs. Yeah. But if it's somebody that I'm not doing business with, no, I don't have time for that. You'll do one of two got, things. You'll either leave it, which is what most people do, or if you really right. care about that reward, whatever it is, that Amazon gift card they're promising you, then yeah. you'll just click every answer until you get to the end to get the reward. And now the brand is just getting a bunch of false data because you didn't right. read any of the questions. You just said, yep, Screw yep. It. I don't have time you know, for the back 70% of this survey. I'm just skipping to the end. You know, it's funny. I got a I got a call from some uh, automotive marketing company last week. I got two calls from them, and I re- responded to the first. It, were they saying to me, you know, we're looking for your opinions. I have an F two fifty because I haul horses, and um, we're looking for your opinions. We're not going to try to sell you any kind of a vehicle. You know, removing that concern right yeah. a, a, out of the box. You know, and in the city of Denver, which you know I'm thirty miles away from, and then you have to deal with traffic, right? Um, and we'll pay you $250. And I thought that $250 won't begin to make up for my time. Yep. <laughs> you know, the time that I have to drive there. Exactly. The time that I have to drive back, the, the hour that I have to spend there. Yep. I mean, that doesn't begin to take, you know, uh, to my time. So I think that's where a lot of these, you know, these companies are thinking, God, $250, anybody would jump at that. Yeah, maybe somebody who lives five minutes away. Yeah, exactly. Would jump at it. And if I lived five minutes away, I would be willing to do that. Yep to offer my opinions, right? But, you know, when I'm looking at at, at least a, uh, a 90 minute drive, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't make up for my time. And, I, and I totally agree. But the missed opportunity yeah. out there is that we don't have to pay people for their opinions. If we make right. engaging enough content and we put it in front of people, it doesn't even need to have a monetary incentive with it. You can create this genuine value exchange we talk about where you actually, you know, say they targeted you with some type of quiz, you know, related to horses or whatever. I don't know what you do with the horses, mm-hmm. but you know, something related to that. Like it might catch your attention enough that you hook in and you engage with it. And if you're going to unlock some video at the end or some article or some recommendation, you might give your opinions without them needing to spend a dollar on you. And that's part of the power of what we're creating. And you asked earlier about, you know, what's the biggest challenge in our industry. And I talked about the cookie and data challenges and privacy challenges, which are real. But the other huge one is the challenge around just getting consumer attention. And we're hitting a point where throwing money and gift cards at people is just getting old and people are ignoring it. Right. And we engage with such amazing content every day on platforms like TikTok and YouTube and Instagram that brands really have to up their game of, Make content that people are going to want to engage with regardless and get the questions answered in a more natural, conversational way as part of that. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, so where do you see uh, yourself, Jebit, investing in resources for growth over, let's say, the next 12 months? Hiring across the board. I mean, we're a software company, so most of the money we just raise is going into people. Uh, a lot of engineers, a lot of salespeople, but hiring people in every department. Um investing a lot in partnerships. We've got a lot of big partners. I talked about Qualtrics earlier, but Salesforce, SAP, 
Shopify, obviously, with our app there. Clavio, Brazen, mm-hmm, Tempted. Mm-hmm. There's a, a bunch of Epsilon. There's a bunch of different people in the space we're partnering with. So leaning into that a lot because um, we just solve we solve a really important kind of niche problem for them, right? Make this content and capture this data, and then we feed the data into their systems, and then their systems perform better. So it's a, we just have a really natural product to partner well. We are not trying to build the whole end-to-end marketing cloud that you use to power your entire company. Um, so those are probably the big areas we're investing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you said how you're, you know, you're not personally as accessible as you were when you had 25 uh, employees. Yeah. What does your day-to-day look like now as a leader, Tom? I sit on Zoom all day and then I go for yeah. walks. Fabulous. And then I go for walks and take calls on the phone when I realize. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. We forgot we used to do business on the phone all the time before the pandemic. Um, yeah. So today, though, to actually answer your question, um, a lot of interviews, since we're hiring so many Uh people, um, a lot of time with some of our big partners, um, just because I know we really want to invest with partners. And then I still try to spend time like doing, you know, skip level meetings and just meeting with people within the organization and hearing how things are going. Um, I definitely still try to spend time with customers. Um, I still probably spend, I don't know, 10% of my time out on sales calls. Like I try to always still keep a pulse of what are we hearing in the market and what are people calling us for and things like that. Um, so I'm probably giving you a bit of a non-answer and that it's a little bit of everything, but that, that is the, the actual answer. Well, and, and the reality is, is, you know, sometimes something may, you know, fall up here and on one day and you know the next day it's down over here right so yeah you know it's it's i'm sure it ebbs and flows right yeah i mean in q4 Uh, of last year when we were in diligence with vista to close our transaction i was spending a lot of my time doing fundraising work right and then right of course then to your point right when we closed the funding a lot of that time went to hiring work because now we have all this new capital we're going to go use to hire people so yeah it, it definitely um it's a thing any entrepreneur would tell you who's done a company for 10 years. It's felt like you've had eight jobs over the 10 years because it just, it's always evolving and changing and you have to evolve and change how you're spending your time and what you're doing. As, as a first time CEO, Tom, what would you say is still sitting out there for you that you're, that you need to do better? Uh, the first thing that comes to mind is time management my chief of staff, Caitlin, would tell you how she tries to reward me with ice cream for showing up on time to meetings. So, um, I'm, uh, how effective is I'm that? I'm fairly bad at that. I think I was three minutes late to talk to you today, which is pretty good for me to be three minutes late. So definitely that. I think um, just like relentless prioritization is something I'm always working on. Um, I don't think I'm always great at that. Um I think in general, I'm a pretty good leader in terms of like creating the culture, setting the vision, letting everyone know where we're going, obviously like handling Mm -hmm. challenges when things go wrong. But I don't think I'm a great like day-to-day manager. Um, So that's always Mm -hmm. something I'm working on improving. How can I run one-on-ones better? Um, How can I be more organized around, you know, helping my team hit their deliverables, uh, things like that. So those are maybe some of the things I'm working on now. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate your honesty on that. How do you spend your time when you're not working? Well, my girlfriend and I are actually in Denver right now. She's getting a PhD. You are? Yeah, she's getting a PhD at CU Denver. Um, 
Okay. So love hiking, love mountain biking, skiing, snowboarding. Um, when we're back in Boston, we're on Cape Cod fishing a lot, golfing, those types of things. So a lot of stuff outdoors is the short answer. Got it. How did COVID or did COVID require you to adjust how you do your business? I think in the grand scheme of things, we adapted pretty easily to COVID. I mean, we were a young tech company in the digital space. Like it wasn't, um, you know, I kind of tell my team all the time, we should be grateful for where we fell on the COVID spectrum and that it didn't crush our business. We're not a travel brand. I mean, we did have about a third of our customers when it hit that were in the travel space. So we had a bit of a hit that way. But as the whole world shifted to digital, people needed to create better digital experiences. So I think in the grand scheme of things, we had a nice like tailwinds around COVID. If you're asking more internally with the company, we all adapted very easily to shifting to online. Um, we built some things in like, um, you know, we have an unlimited uh, vacation policy like most startups do. We deal with the same challenge of a lot of people don't take their vacation when you do that. So we work on that. But we implemented something during COVID that we still do today, which is um, two, I wouldn't say required, but I would say heavily suggested and tracked uh, mental health days a quarter. Very good. The design of those is that they're not supposed to be planned like your vacation. You're not supposed to say, well, I'm leaving for a wedding this weekend, so I'm going to use Friday as a mental health day. No, that's just you're going on vacation to a wedding. Uh, It's designed to be like you wake up on a Thursday and you are just burnt out from the last three weeks Mm -hmm. and you just tell your manager, I'm taking a mental health day today. Um, So that was something important to implement. Generally speaking, I think most people on our team have loved it. They've been able to go live in other places, travel a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say the group that it's been hardest on, um, well, besides the obvious fact of parents who have kids at home and have a lot to deal with. But other than that, I would Mm -hmm. say the group it's been hardest on is uh, new employees right out of college, right? Like they don't get the friends at work and the social scene that you get. And so- we definitely dealt with a handful of people that were in that demographic that were struggling a bit. But to what we talked about earlier of us having really open feedback-driven culture, um, I think most people voiced that to us and we had conversations with them and we helped them work through it. But um, yeah, in the grand scheme of things, I'm really proud of the way the team has adapted. And on paper, we've had our two best years ever since COVID hit. So, you know. Fantastic. Good. So if somebody uh, listening to this, Tom, uh, says, well, this company's pretty interesting. I, I, you know, they're hiring a lot of people. I'm interested yeah. in maybe talking to them. What should they do? They can email me, Tom at Jevitt.com, or we've got a careers page on our website so they can see what the open roles are. But for anyone who knows a startup well, you'd know the open roles are constantly changing. So if they're just interested in the company, they should just email us and introduce themselves right. and we'll figure out the role right. in the future. Got it. Well, and for those listening, uh, let's make sure we know that, tell them how to spell your company uh, as, yeah. so they can find your website. J-E-B-B-I-T dot com. Fantastic. Well, Tom Coburn, uh, co-founder and CEO of Jebit, um, thanks so much for your time. And uh, this was really nice. I really enjoyed talking to you and learning about your company. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And 
If you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com, or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.